What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining us today is Bogomil Baranowski, who is a New York City-based investment professional with almost 15 years of experience. He is the founding partner of Seacart Associates, a boutique investment firm catering to families and entrepreneurs on both sides of the Atlantic and the Pacific. Bogomil is the author of Outsmarting the Crowd, a value investor's guide to starting, building, and keeping a family fortune, 2015, and Money Life Family, My Handbook, published in 2019. Bogomil is a TEDx speaker and greatly enjoys speaking about the investing and family wealth around the world. He likes to say that he was born Polish, grew up European, only to become American later on. He was educated at leading universities in Paris, Warsaw, and Brussels, holds a master's degree in finance and strategy, and a master's in finance and banking from Warsaw School of Economics. Bogomil never stopped learning. In his free time, he reads, writes, flies single-engine propeller planes, scuba dives around the world, and sails. What's next? He would like to fly with bush pilots in Alaska, swim with humpback whales in Tonga, sail around the world, and make a difference in people's lives through writing and teaching. He considers himself a remote investor, a world-bound original thinker, blessed with mindfulness. Bogomil, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How exciting. Yes, very excited for this. And you're not the only guest today. We also also have, for the first time on the Brendan Burns Show, Burns International's COO, Anthony Denizard. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be on with such a guest. And it's funny, you and I have some more similarities. I'm also a diver. I used to fly. And, uh, you know, I did some bush bush flying, actually, when I was learning well, how to fly. We, so we, so hey, here we go. Amazing. We have more to talk about then. Absolutely. Yes. Fantastic. We have two pilots and an aspiring pilot in the room <laughs> together. So, so the topic today <clears throat> is money, life, family, and how to balance the three. Mm-hmm. And it's great to have you here, Bogomil, and to also have Anthony, my COO, who just had his second child a couple of weeks ago. Well, thank you. Congratulations. So, thank yeah, you, so you. this is going to be a good one because we're all very focused not just on success but on fulfillment in life and how to balance and triangulate these different topics. So my first question for you, Bogomil, is money, life, and family – How did you realize that there is more to life than just money? And what inspired you to write this book and think of the three different topics? That's a great question. So when I started writing this book, and it was my second book, as you mentioned, after Smarting the Crowd, I was thinking of a book that I wish I had in my hands when I was 20. And I had a lot of questions. I felt that I knew a lot, but I also knew that there's a lot that I still have to discover. And I wanted to write a book that collects all the experiences that I've had both being born in Poland in the 1980s during communism, growing up in Poland, opening up to the world in the 1990s, watching the stock market reopen after a 50-year break, uh, watching free market economy change the country completely, uh, traveling around Europe, going to schools around Europe, and then ending up in New York and having a career in investments. So I collected different themes, and 
I was looking for lessons that really changed the way I look at the world. So the book has three parts, as you mentioned. The first one talks about investing money. The second one is a collection of lessons that I, I realized I, I learned when I left my firm of 11 years and I started a new firm, Secret Associates, with my three partners. It's four of us. And I realized that investing and career and then life can coexist in a happy way. And I had a chance to redesign my life. As we both talked quite a bit, I ended up on my couch in my flip-flops and my shorts one summer day <laughs> when I left my uh, previous firm. And I thought for a minute, what an exciting moment, but what a scary moment at the same time, because I don't know what's ahead. And <clears throat> I had a chance to completely rethink the next decades of my life. So very passionate about investing, but also the way I look at life and you know, travel, enjoying life. And I realized that spending all the hours at my desk might not be the, the best or the healthiest or the fastest way to move ahead. And actually to become a better investor, I have to step away from my desk, step away from group things, step away from the noise. So that's the middle part of the book. In a way, the real re awakening happened on that couch, but then many conversations with my better half, Megan, and I remember one specific time, we were on the beach in the winter and we were walking, and I realized after she asked me a thousand questions about what I want to do next, I said, I think I, have, I want to have my, my work and my life collide in a way where I stop seeing this as just work or this as just life. So in investments, I look for ideas, and I realized when I step away from my desk, I find much, many more ideas than I would have if I was just stuck at my desk looking at the four walls. Because mm. the inspiration, the conversations, the people that you meet, that's the real world. That's where the investment opportunities uh, are hiding. I also realized that stepping away from a larger firm with committees and big groups, I had a chance to hear my own thoughts. That's getting away from the group thing. And finally, we all have an immense access to what we think is news, but it's, it's just a lot of noise out there. And I, <clears throat> I realized that I could reshape my everyday life and my work to, to limit the noise and focus on what really matters. So for me, it was a chance to do better work, work fewer hours, but provide better value to our clients. And what I notice and what we've noticed is that our clients are telling us, how can you spend so much time with me compared to the experience they've had with other investment firms? And I say, we redesign what we do. We don't have a lot of meetings. We actually have very few meetings. And we do things quickly, efficiently, and we don't waste time. We want to spend time on what adds value, which is finding investment opportunities and talking to clients and explaining what, what are we doing in their portfolio. So that kind of helped me reshape my work and life balance. Now, the last part of the book is, is family. So as you know, we work with family fortunes, multi-generational wealth, but quite a few of the newer clients are actually first-generation wealth creators. They started a business, they sold a business, they had a well-paying job in the tech world, they got compensated very well, and they have a lot of questions that I find fascinating, which is the other revelation that I had, that making money might seem difficult, but actually keeping money, it's the hard part. And the last part of the book is a collection of <clears throat> my lessons, my experience, but also my study of the last 200 years of the most successful families in the world. And there are a lot of themes that repeat what those families have done to keep their money for the long run. So that's that's a whole fascinating open-ended topic, and we can talk more about it and what family is and how family is being reinvented these days. 
but that's that's a fascinating uh, part of what I do as well. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I read a statistic one time that said the uh, greatest source of wealth in the world comes from inheritances, yes. so existing family wealth. So I'm curious right. to circle back on that. And I want to go to uh, part of your book and ask both of you a question. So this is in the mind, the life and mindfulness section, page 143. You say, on some days it really helps to take uh, – to step away for even 10 minutes to take a break, to catch a breath, and to come back with new perspective. And then in the next paragraph, you say, over the years, I grew to appreciate the importance of walks. Mm -hmm. Whether it's New York Central Park, Hudson River's waterfront, or one of the many New York or New Jersey state parks, I love taking a break and going for a long walk. Now, before I ask you guys both this question, (laughs) I'm going to tell a quick story, which is when I was in law school, um, 100% of your grade for a given class was from the final exam. So you have the whole semester where you can go to class or not go to class. And then, but either way, you can skip the whole class and then you go in for a final and that's 100% of the grade. And so often you had these keyboard warriors trying to type as many words as physically possible because there was no word limit on the finals. And I was much more concise trying to be thoughtful individual. And I would go in and I would, usually there would be, say, three long-form answers. And I would do one and say there were three hours. I would spend maybe 40, 45 minutes on the first one. I would ask to go to the bathroom. And I would take a long, leisurely <laughs> stroll through the law school halls. And people would look at me like I was crazy. Mm-hmm. They, they were trying to get every word impossible. Mm-hmm. And I would do the second question. I would go for a long, leisurely stroll to clear my head. And then come back in and do the final one. And you know, my first year of law school, I was in the top ten percent. I did really, really well. Mm-hmm. So um, let's go to Anthony first. Uh, I'm curious how you <laughs> clear your head and how you take breaks from this noisy, chaotic life we have, especially in New York. And then let's go back to Bogomil. I want to hear what inspired you to write that part of your book. There is a, something that I do, and it involves noise. I listen to music. And I listen to a lot of music. Mm-hmm. And Brandon, you know this. You know, if, if things are getting stressful or, or the world is chaotic around me, the first thing I do is put on my earbuds, lay down on the couch or, or someplace, start playing records, and, and just start detuning the background noise. Mm-hmm. And it allows me to focus on what's important in the room. The other thing I like to do is go to the coast. You mentioned you were a sailor. Mm-hmm. I like to do water sports. I like to do anything near the ocean, breathe the salt air or whatnot. If, if I need to get out of the city, that's where I'll go, and I can really clear my head. So it struck a chord with me when you say you would go on these long walks and, mm-hmm. and really st- sort of absorb what the cosmos is saying to you. I think there's another trait that you know, at least the three of us exhibit and people like us do. When you're willing to walk to the beat of your own drum, your ability to be one with yourself alone is key. And if you can't be um, satisfied with who you are by yourself, mm-hmm. you're never going to be doing well anywhere else. Absolutely. So, you know, music, the beach, these types of things, that's what I do. to. to yeah, I, th- I think you have to have this sense of security in yourself to be able to go take that walk, mm-hmm. metaphorically speaking. Right. Because when I'm in law school, there's so much insecurity around how am I going to perform? There's no time for this. I need to do what other people are doing. Right. And so I'll hand the baton over to you for I your insights it. on that. I love it. I, I love that you both had experiences in your life that made you think about how walks or just taking breaks can make a difference. I'm thinking how nowadays everybody's talking about being busy and working hard. And I have nothing against it, too. It's just what are you busy with and what makes you work hard. And there is this illusion that and at school or at work, we run into a wall. Like We see that our productivity just stopped. 
we're producing words or producing slides or whatever it is, the outcome is coming, but the quality of it is just it's falling off the cliff. It's not there in, in your law school experience, and I'm sure you've seen it too. Absolutely. And it takes a certain courage, I think that's the right word here that you mentioned, to say, what if I did something different than everybody else would do in this moment, which is instead of staying another extra hour, just working even harder and even longer, just walk away for a second and let your brain breathe just for a second. And it's funny that you mentioned it, and I, I got chills for a second when you mentioned your school, because when I was in Paris at Sciences Po getting my graduate degree in, in finance, I remember a big classroom, we were taking a long test. It was one of those longer pieces. I don't know, it was two hours or three hours. And halfway through it, I feel I felt that I ran out of steam. And I wrote everything I could, but I thought I need a break. And I walked out. I said, I'm going to the bathroom. And I just didn't even go to the bathroom. I just walked around the hallways for a second. Sure. And I went back. And I don't know if what impact it had, but I think it had a huge impact on the second half of the test because I looked at it with fresh eyes. And it made a difference. And I had moments like this at work where I would just go outside, walk around the block. If I couldn't go to the park, if I couldn't go outside and be around trees and nature and see sure. what you talk about, just just leave for a second and give your brain a, a second to collect and breathe. And I think that's something we're missing out on. We're just trying to work even harder and even harder and even harder. Nobody has the courage, or very few of us have the courage to just take a break. It's funny, you mentioned a great point there. I think the question we have to ask is, why do we need to work harder? Well, because I think it's, it's that mindset that the outcome, the, out, the output matters, right? So uh, we used to do manual labor, and you could see how many pencils I've made or mm -hmm. how many widgets I've produced in, a, in an hour, in a day, and that's how you could see how much you should compensate me or how much I think you should compensate me. <laughs> but nowadays, uh, you know, obviously, we're producing pages of slides and pages of documents and reports, and, and there's no end. And it's so easy to produce extra pages these days than, yeah. than when you do it by hand with a pencil. So everybody's watching your output. What have you done today? Like, show me what have you done. I'm sure you had a boss. I had a boss at some point asking me, what have you done? And all that mattered was, you know, pages thickness of the report and and it's we get lost in it and i see it i saw it in my career i see it in my friends careers that the output matters more how many pages not what's in it but what how many pages you've produced and for a yeah. second if, if we look at the, the quality of the work that we do the one thing that i learned when we left the firm and we became independent in the first week and i talk about it in the book when i left my firm and we're rebuilding a whole new investment firm i realized that the minute I don't have a boss watching over me, a lot changes. Because it doesn't matter if I come in early or I come in late, if I have so many papers on my desk or not. Nobody cares about it. Clients care if, did you do what we would like you to do? Did you uh, produce? Did you produce? Did you actually <laughs> yeah. produce results? Results, And yeah. nobody's looking at my desk and saying, oh, there are only two pages. There's, you've seen my desk. There's nothing on my desk. Like, there's usually a pencil and one sheet of paper. Yep. So you would look at it and you would say, what, what do you do? But where's the output? These are similar <laughs> traits. Again, I say this. It's very interesting the three of us are having this, this right. chat today. We all possess these traits. Mm -hmm. If you looked at our desks, yeah. it's almost identical. It's the same thing. I was, I was about to. Yeah. So, yeah, we have a client and I was thinking, all right, well, let's send out our monthly reporting to him and show kind of the results and the exercises we've been doing for right. executive coaching. And then I realized next week we're going to do something huge together that's mm -hmm. going to change everything. 
And a monthly reporting sheet doesn't matter, right? right? You can send the best monthly reporting sheet right. and you cannot be delivering and you could never send a reporting sheet and you're changing these people's lives, exactly. right? And it's the same thing for your business. You right. can have the sharp ratio, the alpha, the beta, the whatever, you or, you can just de- or you can just deliver the results. There's nothing right. wrong with good reporting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. And so now I want to ask you a question from your book. Mm-hmm. You have a story in there, which seems like it was a defining moment for you in terms of understanding money. Okay. It involved your father. Yes. You know what wow, I'm talking that's, about? The that's guess. a good story. Yes. Yeah, tell it for the audience, please. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's a great story. So <clears throat> Poland was under communism until I was 9, 10, and my parents were travelers, so we couldn't leave Poland. You know, it was very tricky to, to travel outside of Poland, so we saw everything you could see in Poland, the mountains, the lakes, and everything in between. But we did our first real longer trip to Greece. So we drove in a little tiny Fiat with uh, cans of food and a tent from Poland to Greece, which is about the distance from Boston to, to Florida. So it's, it's a long drive for a tiny little car. And on that trip, you know, I've seen Greek ruins. I tried uh, olives for the first. I didn't like them at first. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. I hated olives until I was an adult. Now, now I love olives, but at the time I thought this is the strangest thing in the world. Same here. So I remember that. But I also remember the story that you mentioned on the same trip. Um, we pulled into a gas station, and gas stations in Poland were, were gray. Everything was gray under communism. It was, it was not a... a as a kid, you don't realize because your, your parents are taking you on walks and I had a dog and I didn't see that. But leaving Poland even for that, that short trip made me realize that the, the world is much more colorful. You know, the free market economy is producing better outcomes than a centrally planned economy that we had in Poland with a lot of restrictions. So the gas stations in Poland were gray. Usually there was a chain and half of it was closed. It wasn't working. But we pulled into a gas station outside of Vienna, Austria, and it was a beautiful, colorful gas station. I still remember the place with my kids' eyes. Sure. And I thought this is this is like a candy store. Just and they're just selling gas, like nothing special. <laughs> <laughs> and and my dad um, filled up a little the tank of the little car, and it was twenty dollars. And I remember to this day it was twenty dollars. It was nineteen ninety ninety one, nineteen ninety. And he said, not long ago, as a doctor, as a physician, basically saving people's lives every day, he was paid $20 a month in Poland under communism. So he said, I just put my monthly salary into the tank of this little car. Yeah. And as a kid, it was so much to process. And I remember going back to that conversation with him over the years, and I, I had to grow up to really embrace and understand. But it made me realize that Big decisions, big political decisions affect everything all the way down to a kid watching a parent fill up a tank and how money can have very different purchasing power at different times in different places. But it was a starting point to to just be curious, how does the world work? And how can I figure it out and how can I learn from it and hopefully benefit from it? And that's what started my interest in economics and much later in, in the investment world and mm. owning businesses and managing uh, wealth, my own and my clients, and seeing how that all fits into the big picture and yeah. how it can help people live better lives in the end. Yeah, no, that's such a great story. Uh, I have a similar early experience with the stock market, though, being maybe 12 or 13 years old during the tech boom in the late 90s and 2000. 
And I just remember purchasing a share of stock through my mother's account of, I think it was Yahoo, mm -hmm. and seeing it go up basically double within a few weeks. And I said, so my $20 is now worth $40? Where did that come from? And that got me really hooked into this world. So that's, uh, that's interesting. I want to talk about money for mm -hmm. a second because I've read that we are now in the first generation of uh, – of individuals where our parents' generation was more successful. There was a better economy and it was going up and up and up for every generation. And now due to the stagnation, due to monetary policy, due to GDP slowdown, whatever it is, um, we're now in, in a tough environment. Education costs are extremely, they're the highest they've ever been. Right. Um, growth is, is slowing tremendously. Um, you know, a lot of the growth in 2019 was due to the tax changes and mm -hmm. things like that. So, um, we've, I've had some listeners of this show actually reach out and say, how can I, um, obviously your expertise is in investing. So I'm curious what you have to say there. And I'm also curious for, for some people who are barely breaking even in right. this economy and don't feel like they even have any capital to invest mm -hmm. and how to manage their finances in 2020 and going forward. It's a very <clears throat> bittersweet moment in history i think because on one hand we've seen the biggest wealth creation ever in the last you know, 20 30 40 years at the same time we will see the biggest ever wealth transfer between generations so the, the, we work with high net worth clients but we realize that lessons we've learned with them are lessons that a lot of families could use because there will be a lot of wealth transfer between generations from parents grandparents so that's the sweet part the bitter part is that you're right. It's it's a peculiar time in um, American history or world economy and everything at the same time that growth is slowing down. Uh, costs of education and housing. We're in New York City, one of the priciest places you can live in, and I'm sure you can see how officially prices are not going up, but somehow more money is leaving our wallets. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> no with, um, housing or anything else uh, related. So. I look at it this way. Uh, there are certain circumstances that we were born in, and there are certain things that we can change, and there are certain things that we can make the best of. And I feel like education is still very important. What kind of education you get and what kind of jobs you choose, that's a whole different topic. And I think on one hand, <clears throat> I have a lot of friends with student debt. I was lucky that I was educated in Europe. I got scholarships, and I have no student debt experience, which is a great blessing, which I didn't realize until I moved to New York that for a lot of people, it's out of the question to be without a student loan, yeah. right? But even taking that as an example, look around for all the options that are available. You can refinance your loan, student loans, once you have a job because you have a source of income, you will probably get a lower interest rate. So there are a lot of things that you can do to manage an inconvenient moment in, in history, right? So just lowering the cost of the student debt that you have. Because I have a lot of friends that left school and their interest rate is 11, 12, 15 percent. Wow. That's great. That's almost, Com uh, compounding at that rate. Compounding, but that's <clears throat> that's the rate that was offered to them at a different point in time, you know, four or five years ago, whatever it was, uh, or more. And uh, at the time, they had no income, right? So what kind of an interest rate would you charge somebody with no income and you don't know if that person will finish school, right? So right. The, it was a much riskier uh, person from the bank's perspective. Now you have a job and you could probably refinance. I'm surprised how many, how few people 
do that because that's an option that's available. There are quite a few companies that are actually started by millennials doing it for the millennials, and I think they have a, a fantastic model that is basically helping people handle a problem mm-hmm. that they, they they have. Now, I know, and New York is a great example, that a lot of people spend everything that they make, and I talk about it in the book, and I... Or more. Or more. Yep. Or more. It's it's yeah. uh, Or more, right? And I, I know it's very difficult. It's not easy, but the thing is that no matter what income you have, I, I know people that make less than, than the national average, and I know people that make a multiple of that, and I hear arguments that they can't live with whatever number they have. So it's just our human condition that we will find ways <laughs> to spend any amount of money. And, and humans will always find ways to feel poor yes. than they actually are. Absolutely. They get to, I, you know, I worked with a lot of people when I was at my last hedge fund job, mm-hmm. um, I was looking to bring on someone to help raise capital. Right. And so I met with a guy who n- needed mm-hmm. at least a millionaire. Right. And then I met with another guy who said, well, you know, I have a, a wife and a kid on the way. I need $400,000 a year. Right. And so I, I respect that because mm-hmm. to live in Manhattan and right. to afford all these things, yeah, you probably do need at least several hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, but I, I see this uh, syndrome called the golden handcuff syndrome. Right. And a lot of people, they get comfortable. Oh, they start every year to move into a slightly nicer rental building. Mm-hmm. One thing that Anthony and I talk about a lot is buying versus renting. Right. And, uh, you know, you get to a point where your rent is three to $5,000 per month. Mm-hmm. You start to get uh, hooked onto some of these apps like Caviar and these DoorDash deliveries. And <laughs> right. you're, you're still ordering gourmet sushi for $70 for two people every night. And so um, one thing that I really respect is this concept of what's called uh, self-imposed poverty. Mm-hmm. Kevin Kelly talks about this, the co-founder of Wired Magazine. Right. I thought he was the most interesting man in the world until I met you guys. <laughs> well, thank you, Brendan. <clears throat> thank you. Kevin says that uh, go on an experiment for a month uh-huh. as if you lived in poverty. Cook every meal. Stay at a friend's place and rent your place out for the money. Right. Wear the same clothes. Just look at all your expenses and then see if you could do it. Mm-hmm. And then everyone who tries it can do it. And sometimes people actually have a lot more fun doing it. Absolutely. And so what they realize is if they want to take that risk and start their own business, out, you know, and they have fear of money holding them back, they do it anyway. Mm-hmm. They say, well, worst case scenario, I can always crash on my buddy's couch for a month before I get a new job, mm-hmm. things like that. And you realize how money can be more of handcuffs and an addiction and fear-driven motivator than anything else. You're touching on so many interesting uh, topics and and. I have references in I different see you're points. Picked up the book. I picked through. up the book. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, you, you inspired some uh, interesting thoughts here because early in my book, it's page one or page two, I have the exact quote that talks about what you're talking about, which is money. And I say, rich people stay rich by living like they're broke. Broke people stay broke by living like, like they're, they're rich. rich. Yeah. That's good. And it's not my my words. I, I borrowed them. I'm not sure who the author of those words is. But I think it's it's the secret of it all, right? Agree. If there is a way to spend any income. And you know, New York offers wonderful opportunities. And there are a lot of people that have amazing incomes. You can spend it all. It's not, not a problem. Now, when we're talking about fresh graduates from school, I was a graduate at some point, and you know, I was living in a basement apartment. You can adjust your spending really, really far and not enjoy all 
that the city or anywhere you live has to offer just to build up some sort of a buffer. I moved here from Paris, first from Poland to Paris, from Paris to New York. And when I came here, I, I had an internship for six months that turned into a job. And my, at the time, boss, Francois Sicard, became, became my mentor and now a business partner. But in the early days, my, my budget was very, very, very small. And I was living an hour and a half outside of the city, and I would just see friends at their apartments or my apartment. And I, I realized that what gave me peace of mind was the ability to save just enough so I had what I believed at the time was six months of my living expenses. Because I thought, I have to rely on, on myself here. And if things don't work out the way I want, I want to have the peace of mind, the, the safety, the comfort that I ha can, can buy myself time to figure out the next steps. So I know it's, it's possible. And I think it changes a lot in, in any job, in any career you are, if you can have few months of living expenses saved. And it's scary when I look at statistics and I hear about how people live one paycheck away from bankruptcy. And it's not just low incomes. It's, it's very high incomes at the same time. Sure. And the fear that you go home with, no matter what your paycheck is, it's, it's incredible. People talk about stress, and nobody asks, what, what does it mean? Where does the stress come from? You know, long hours and all that. But the truth is that you have a conversation with your boss, and you're afraid that if it goes poorly, you might lose the chance of getting the next paycheck. And then the car payment, the home payment, this payment, that payment, those payments are not waiting. And you survived and flourished. Thinking yes. this way, yeah. Yes. Well, one is, yeah. Go ahead, Anthony. I, I didn't want to interject, but I, I think of a lesson that I learned from my mother <clears throat> at a very young age. She took me down to the center of town mm -hmm. to our local bank. Mm -hmm. As soon as I could spell out the name Anthony right. on a giant white piece of paper, we uh -huh. opened up a savings account. There you go. Single best uh, financial mm -hmm. example I ever learned in my life. No, that's 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 absolutely true. And if I haven't learned. In the early days, you know, moving to New York or in, in, as a college student, I saw you were talking about sleeping on the couch. I had friends sleeping on my couch during the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. It was three, four years into my career. And at the time, I thought this is the worst thing that could have happened to me. But looking back, I'm glad it happened so early in my life and in my career because I wasn't responsible for you know, big family fortunes at the time. I was learning. It was a great time to, to observe and, and absorb it all. But I realized that I had so many friends that day-to-day -day were all having fun, but the minute they lost their job, they were a paycheck away from being... Disaster. Yeah, homeless. So yeah. they asked, you know, can I use your couch? I had this nice IKEA couch. <laughs> 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 Nothing fancy, but it was a popular spot for quite a few months for a lot of friends that were figuring out their next step. And it made me realize I'm... What a blessing it was to have those few months of savings at the time and not worry as much as they did mm -hmm. about what's next. I was lucky that I was I kept the job and we took pay cuts and all that, but there were a lot of friends that uh, lost jobs and they were faced with immediate you know, panic and fear. So You said a key word here, friends. Mm -hmm. And I think when you go through a time like this, you truly realize who's a friend and who isn't. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that's where the money affects the personal relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, you know, important to steer this conversation into some of this stuff as well. Right. That when you can sort out life, you can sort out your finances, you can sort out mm -hmm. survival in a situation like this. Right. Usually you can be in tune with yourself, back to what we were saying earlier, mm -hmm. 
to sort out who you should be friends with. Absolutely. That's, yeah. That's a... M- money is a good way to tell who your real friends are. Mm-hmm. Because when you have no money and they still want to hang out with you. <laughs> that's, that's a good sign. No, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. So uh, just some statistics here. Mm-hmm. Average person, um, 34 years of age or younger, they have $1,350 in savings. I read a statistic a year or two ago that said that about a quarter of all Americans mm-hmm. um, have negative, they're in debt, basically. So their life savings is $1,000 or less. Um, average age, 35 to 44. Singles with children, um, savings is $2,400. Mm-hmm. Singles with no children, life savings, $3,693. And to your point earlier, um, you know, student debt, is such a massive overhang for people that you can't ask them, oh, yeah, I have $50,000 in savings, right? But if you have $100,000 in debt, you actually have no savings. You have no savings. And so I think uh, it's really interesting that if if you're under 34 and have a child and you own one share of Amazon Mm -hmm. stock and you have no debt, you have more than the average person (laughs) in savings. Yes, absolutely. Um, so these are scary statistics, and mm-hmm. I think it is important to talk about money and budgeting and all these right. things. Well, you know, you've all gone through schools. I've gone through schools, and I, I feel like I've learned a lot of you know, high finance, you know, valuing options, all kinds of crazy sure. things that yeah. it was fun to learn. But I realized that nobody really sat down with me, like your mom sat down with you and mm-hmm. said, like, this is how money works, and you can't run away from it. Because money is, is a big part of our lives. Yeah. And you can you can forget about it, deny it, and all that. But it comes back every day. The minute you walk out of the house and you want to get something, you need money. Uh, absolutely. And the minute your parents say you're on your own, and that's, that's a big awakening. And you realize, oh, that's how much I can bring in in a month. That's how much I need to spend. And you start to plan. And there's a big <coughs> movement, the FIRE movement these days, about living be- below your Means, basically. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard of it. I'm, I'm a big big fan of anybody that talks about you know saving and budgeting. So sure. Benjamin Franklin started 200 years ago. I'm sure there was somebody before him. But anybody that talks about it, I think it's very helpful for younger people to realize how much do you really spend a month? Like, where does the money go? And nowadays with, with apps, it's so easy to link in your bank accounts and see how much money actually leaves your wallet. In a way, I, I, I love technology, but I miss those days when money was paper money in your pocket because yeah. you could actually physically see how many bills sure. <laughs> are leaving. Now you walk out, you swipe your card three times, and it's $300. <laughs> and it feels the same way if you swipe for $3 a coffee. I mean, I don't know if you can get a coffee for $3. but <laughs> If you know a place in the city, <laughs> you know please let us know, right? <laughs> it, yeah. Right? Or if you spend 300 it's the same swipe. So so physically, you don't really feel the money that's leaving your account. But there are many easy ways to just take a look how much money you're spending every month and then how much money comes in every month and figure out a way. And we, well, of course, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but you will realize how many things you're spending money on that don't bring you joy and actually, in the end, bring you more stress at the end of the month because sure. the money is gone. So I'm all for starting as early as possible. And if you're talking about people that are leaving school, start thinking about it now because it's like planting a tree. You know, there's this proverb that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second like best time is yeah. now. Is now. Yeah. So yeah. people say, well, I wish I started at 15. Well, you're 25. You can still start. You're 45. You can still start. It, it, there's no time limit. Yeah. You can say you wish you did, but 
whatever the time is just to start. If you can live below your means, if you can invest, you talked about Amazon, if you put a little bit of money away and invest even in a plain index fund that tracks the whole economy and you become a business owner of all those businesses out there and you do it over a lifetime, you'll do just fine. Yeah. And just let time take care of the rest. So that's that's the whole idea. You know, we work with big family fortunes, but I realize that all the lessons that we've learned, they apply to no matter how small nest egg you're working with. You know, the, if it's a hundred dollars or it's a it's a hundred million dollars, the the rules are the same. The money works the same yeah. way. It's just the people that have a lot, they had the time to worry and think about it. So they have a plan, they have some help, they have an advisor and guidance. But so many people with a lot less could benefit from the same lessons and that's the big idea of the book that you don't have to have a hundred million dollars to get a little smarter about how you live with money or how money plays a role in your life do you yeah. F- yeah do you find with this legacy wealth that generation one establishes that generation two comes in and keeps it going three wants to change something or do you, do you find a struggle in there there's absolutely. a lack of discipline maybe absolutely so <clears throat> we work with with um families that have had wealth for multiple generations they made a lot of wise choices down the road that allowed that wealth to grow and continue and my big revelation was that as we spoke earlier making money and keeping money are very different experiences so you usually make money in one big investment we hear about people that reach the top and it's usually one big investment now the future it's not about one single investment. It's usually about a portfolio investment, mm-hmm. investments, right? So you're managing your wealth among many different companies. There are very few companies that have been around 100 years ago and are today still around and of the same size. Even Carnegie Steel, that was the first billion-dollar company, it's still about a billion-dollar company today, but a billion today is not the same as a billion no. 100 years ago, right? So you can't just sit still. You actually have to change and adapt to change. I, I like uh, there's a part of the book where I quote some... Um, lessons from one of the longest lasting banking families in Europe and they talk about the the change the change is the only constant and you just have to adapt and adapt now there are interesting things that happen between the different generations and I think the biggest lesson that I noticed is that it might have taken one individual to build a family fortune one investment even one place on earth but it takes the whole family to keep that well and communicating and educating the next generation your mom gave you a priceless lesson taking you to that bank. And that, that lesson is paying off. Absolutely. Know, right? So having those moments, communication, education, an open channel between the generations where they share what they've learned. And the younger generation at first says, I know it all. We've all had that moment in our life, Bonnie <laughs> Funk. We know it all. That's the 20-year-old me. And then you realize it actually pays to, to listen to, to others because they've done it all. They've seen it all. And here I'd like to mention the role of, of mentors, people that really make a difference in your life. And yeah. I was lucky enough to work with Francois Sicard, that he's in his 70s now. He has 50 years of experience, and he's the senior partner of the firm. And I've learned a lot from him just talking about what the world has. What's the biggest lesson you've learned from him? Keep on learning. I always see him with a book. He's always mm-hmm. reading something. He's always discovering things. And yeah. he has a bookshelf of books going back to the 70s and uh, it's, it's fascinating to even pick up older books and see what we thought will happen and what hasn't happened, which makes me think of, of you know, predictions and future. You say that today it's such a difficult time. 
I'm a huge optimist. So I, I feel like this is still the best country in the world, and I feel, feel that there will be opportunities for uh, younger people and everybody. It's it's a huge economy. It's 300 million people. A lot of very ambitious, very uh, motivated people that want to make a difference. I mean, you guys are sitting here and you know reinventing the world with you know spreading your message. We're sitting at this recording studio that's spreading even more messages of other people. It's it's fascinating what the technology has allowed us to do. It's like, can you imagine doing this 50 years ago? First of all, it would have been a no lot podcast harder. then. No <laughs> podcast then. You yeah. know, a few radio stations. If you don't have an in, if you're not. On the inside, dark coffee shop somewhere with no <laughs> nobody except us, you know, exactly. having this discussion or exactly. taking yeah. part. But, yeah. but your message in this conversation can be heard by tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. That's a very powerful way to, yeah. to spread ideas. So, I'm very optimistic about the ways you know, that technology, especially technology, empowers us to do things. Just a simple idea. You know, we used to be a part of a 130 people firm. And we moved out and we became independent. We have four partners, five, five of us with one employee. And because of technology, we have the same capabilities than mm-hmm. a 130-person firm. And we replaced everything with software, software apps. We outsourced to other firms that do it better or faster or just uh, more efficient than we do. And we focus on what we do best, picking investments, working with clients. But... I remember going to the stock exchange in 2005, just when I arrived in New York, and there were brokers running around still with paper sheets that said bought and sold. And I have one of those sheets at home. It's a, it's a bookmark in one of my books. And it's not that long ago. No. So nowadays, everything is, is it's technology. It's, it's you know, the trades that way they happen the settlements, that way they happen. It's Human is not needed in a lot of those uh, situations. There are fewer errors. It's quicker. And you can focus on the true value added yep. part instead of on the, the mundane uh, paper pushing part. That's great. So we've talked <clears throat> a lot. You've shared a lot of value in terms of budgeting, money, investing, finance, and success. Let's tie it all into life and family because mm-hmm. um, I'll speculate and say that I'm sure you've met a multimillionaire or a billionaire who has had all the money and all the success in the world, yes. and you can just tell they're not a happy person. They're not fulfilled. Right. And I'm not going to ask you to talk about <laughs> specific clients, but let's um, let's tee this all up as we come into the mm-hmm. towards the end of this episode. Um, how did you learn that there's more to life than money and success? Mm-hmm. And uh, what can we share with the listeners to help them understand that the goal in life is not success? It's fulfillment it's family it's your relationship with yourself absolutely and career well i see money as something that empowers us to do things i don't see it as a goal in itself and i think a, a lot of younger people and many people arriving in new york for example they think of money as the, the first goal and the minute you actually achieve it and you see a bigger paycheck you think oh this is not all and i know you've had that experience brendan and, and i know that you've had that experience too and i've had that experience as well and you talk about friends. I feel like the financial crisis so early in my career made me realize who my true friends are and who I was trying to be a true friend in a difficult time for them. So it made me realize that you know, money plays a big role, but but relationships and friends and family, a little community around, around you pl- plays a bigger role. And I realized that happiness is not really a destination. So it's not a moment that I got here and look, I'm happy. <laughs> right? here, here I am smiling. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I feel like it, it's a journey, and uh, having, for me, it's the curiosity. You know, the uh, trying 
as a kid, I was so curious to see the world, a trip to Greece that I was talking about. And I was reading a lot of travel books. I had maps of the world. I was actually traveling around the U.S. with my, um, with my finger um, before I even came here, and I was learning the cities. The minute I discovered that Washington State is on the wrong side of the country and Washington, <laughs> D.C. is on the other, <laughs> it was the biggest revelation. But all that to say that curiosity is what drives me personally, and I think that's something that's very inspiring. And I've seen that among um, many people that I work with, many of our clients, and I see how they raise their kids, how much uh, they value education. But not just education in terms of getting degrees, but in terms of just learning about the world and seeing things. And it's never been cheaper to travel. It's never been cheaper to go see the world. I, I hear stories where people, and you talk about, you know, your, um, the story of somebody that was sleeping on people's couches for a while. I hear stories about people that traveled the world just relying on the kindness of others. Couch so, surfing. Couch surfing. There's exactly. a website for it. There's there a website for it. You can go couch surf for free around the world. Exactly. So yeah. there are many ways to go and see and discover and be curious. And I think the more you see, the more you start to develop first gratitude. For me, was to see... Um, in my early days, uh, the, the, you know, the grayness of communism in Poland made me still today appreciate the little things. And I didn't see this until I moved to New York and I saw so much more that I realized, oh, not having things, it's a big thing that shapes you. And I, I realized a lot of families don't immediately tell their kids all that's coming their way. They slowly let them in and they educate them as they go. I think the scariest moment is that when somebody sits you down and says, this is what you're going to get at 21, and it's uh, we've seen that happen. It's a very overwhelming experience. So communication and that open conversation with the next generation and preparing them for it. Again, the biggest wealth transfer has just happened in the last few dec decades. The biggest wealth transfer will happen in the next few decades. And there are a lot of fascinating things happening at the same time. There are a lot of single-parent families, much more than ever before. There are families with fewer kids. We're talking about an inverted pyramid where there is one child, you know, two parents, four grandparents. So there's a lot that um, weighs down on one single child to take on the minute they have a big inheritance coming their way, which is also a fascinating a dynamic, very different than in the past where you would have more and more people in each successive generation. So you would actually have to divide it into smaller pieces, agree with more siblings. Another topic is if you think that the kids didn't play well with their toys, do you think they'll play well? Wait for the inheritance. Absolutely. <laughs> Wait for the inheritance. Right? Yeah. But at the same time, there are a lot of young people that acquired big, big wealth these days. We were talking about technology, but technology also creates huge wealth. There are a lot of people working for, for tech companies that I had a chance to speak at Intel and Google in the last few years. There are a lot of people that are fascinated with the topic of keeping their wealth. They received yeah. a lot, than they, much more than they expected in the early days of their career. And they know that they might not have a second chance to create that kind of wealth in the next few decades. They're very curious how they can make this money last yeah. over, the next, uh, over the rest of their life and hopefully for their kids as well. So yeah, fascinating topics, fascinating times. But yeah, I, I just want to also add, uh, as a fellow investor, you know, I worked at a hedge fund for several years. That it's such an important skill, and I don't know if everyone needs to learn how to invest and research single name stocks. Right. But I will say that my ability to live a lifestyle far beyond what I, I I've probably 
made more money through my investing than I've earned in mm-hmm. jobs, arguably. I, don't, I haven't actually parsed that out. <laughs> but when I think about all of my exciting life experiences, when I think about I just went to Russia mm-hmm. for a week, I bought a Fabergé egg, not a real one. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I'm just saying that because I don't want my listeners to come steal it. Okay. Fabergé egg, flew business class, ate at the White Rabbit, which is the 13th best restaurant in the world, apparently, uh, in Moscow. Did all these things, and so much of it was not from money I earned, but mm-hmm. what that money was turned into for me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the investing that I've done. So I, I think certainly learning at least the basics mm-hmm. about investing. And another thing, it would be really valuable to anyone um, you know, and then there's obviously the value books that we probably, you probably enjoy like Seth Klarman, Margin of so Safety, ones, yes. uh, Benjamin Graham, mm-hmm. Intelligent Investor. And then also to bring Anthony into this conversation is I think that, uh, people nowadays want instant gratification yes. in all areas of their life. Mm-hmm. And so one area is where they live. And this might just be a Manhattan thing, but I can spend $3,000 a month and live in Chelsea or the West Village in a fancy building with a dog run and yoga studio on the fourth floor and all these things. I lived in one of these buildings, (laughs) flushing money down the toilet versus I can be more disciplined with saving. Um, I can live a little bit more frugally, maybe for a year or two, get a down payment in order, uh, you know, buy an apartment in a maybe less desirable neighborhood, maybe in an older building. But one of the best ways to create wealth has been real estate. Yes. And so uh, Anthony has been instrumental in my first uh, purchase, which is going to be happening. Congratulations. You've heard it. In the next few months. (laughs) Yeah, I just had an offer accepted on a property in Brooklyn. Very cool. And, you know, I think that's just another thing is Mm -hmm. uh, I think discipline, understanding. And what I was going to say earlier, I'm telling all these great stories, so you you (laughs) distracted me, is that I think people are not always savvy or successful with their finances because they're afraid to even look at it. Right. It's like the example of you have a rash on your arm and mm-hmm. you don't want to go to the doctor because mm-hmm. you're afraid of what it might be. But it's better to go when the rash is here right. than in three months when it's on every inch of your body and it might be much worse. Absolutely. And so you mentioned some apps that can help people get a better handle on their financial landscape and mm-hmm. where their money is and where their spending is and isn't. And I, I would really encourage listeners today to use what you're saying, Bogomol, and go at least do an inventory right. of where they're at. Mm-hmm. If you ask the average person, what's your net worth? Mm-hmm. Do they even know what that means? Assets plus liabilities or asset minus liabilities. Do they even know what the term equity means in themselves and their, their life savings minus debt? Mm-hmm. You know, if the average person has one to three thousand dollars, they're probably not on top of that regularly. Right. The idea also behind writing this book was to empower people to ask the right questions, to know what kind of questions to ask. And it was interesting what you mentioned. It's not everybody has to be a stock picker and go around and find by themselves every single investment. It's wonderful if that's what you want to do. I love it. It's my passion and I do it every day. And I tell people, people ask me, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? I would still walk around and look for investment opportunities. I have fun with it. But just having a plan and putting some money aside and investing it, even in a passive way, that's a great start. Now, if you have more and you want to know more, don't be afraid to ask for help. And I feel like this book will also empower people to find the right advisor that works for them. 
which is really important. But I like the idea that investing, and that's something that you were talking about, is making money in your sleep. That's what investing is. Mm-hmm. Like, think about it for a second. Making money in your sleep, right? So you don't have to show up anywhere for your Amazon stock or whatever stock, Apple stock, to go up. If you bought it at the right price at the right time and, and you hold it for a while and the business prospers and it grows and you have all the tens of thousands of employees of that company wake up every day and they're do doing the work right. they're doing the work yeah you provided the capital you're so a business you're, owner you're a business fractional owner. but you're still the owner you're still the owner it yeah. doesn't really matter that it's a small piece of the business it yeah. is a piece of the business it's the piece of the the, the economy that continues yeah. to do well yeah that's a wonderful thing that is happening in the background as you're traveling or doing everything else. Having a family. Having a family. Aging. Same thing with real estate. (laughs) I mean, obviously you have to think about where we are in cycles and valuations. Mm -hmm. But if you buy a place to live in and you're paying it down over time, and once you own it over time, the value appreciates. Right. You don't, and that's, I've kind of felt this way lately myself where I have my stocks going up, I'm about to buy an apartment and, and then I'm like, Feeling, oh, well, if I don't produce anything today, but I'm still mm-hmm. building wealth, how does that I feel work? guilty. <laughs> it's not even confusion. It's guilt. Like, I should be writing something. Or, and I think that's a very American thing. Well, think of the, the seed that you planted, right? So yeah. the, the initial capital that you put to work. And it can be very small. It can become bigger. But that's, that's the, the real effort that you made at the beginning. It's the ca- sacrifices that you took not to spend that money, right? Because people say, I make $50,000. You really don't because you have to pay taxes on it. Then you have to have a place to live. You need to pay for transportation to get to your work. And then you start taking those things down and you have a family and you have other expenses. You realize it's not Mm $50,000. Maybe it's ten. And out of of that ten, if you can keep five, and that five starts to work for you in your sleep, which what investing is, that five can turn into 10 or 20 and then 40 and then 80 and so on over the next decades. And you say, well, it doesn't really matter. But if you do that over time, it can be a very substantial amount of money and let time take care of it. Absolutely. All right. So let's wrap up here. Um, I'm going to ask you for one kind of overarching balanced Mm-hmm. either quote or principle that you'd like to leave with our audience. Uh-huh. Um, if they were to only hear one thing or do one action, what mm-hmm. would you say? I would say start now. And the easiest thing to start with is look at where the money goes every month. It will tell you much more about you, your life, and maybe it will shed some light on where you can head from here. And that's the greatest starting point. And then keep going. Yeah, very well said. Yeah, I had a friend one time and she saw that I was doing well at the hedge fund, but also spending quite frivolously. And she said to me one time, Brandon, it's not how much money you make. It's not your top line. Right. It's your bottom line. Mm -hmm. How much are you actually saving? What stage? Because like you said, you could be making 50,000 and if you save five, Mm -hmm. saving 10%. Right. It's more than I was. It was basically breaking even. Exactly. So that's good. Yeah. Anthony, what would you say? I, I know you're very savvy. You have two properties that you own, and um... I, you know, it's funny. I I love the idea of sleeping on it and have it work for you, and, and that's what I've done just yeah. with the real estate and you know, yeah. other endeavors as well. I would say this: it's not where you start off in life that matters; it's where right. you finish. 
Yes. Yeah. And that's where you should judge yourself. Mm -hmm. And those around you that judge you should be judging you on that. Mm -hmm. Not where you are in this moment, but where, where are you headed and, and where are you going to end up? Yeah. Absolutely. Don't beat yourself up because you're, you're here. Mm -hmm. You can always, like biography doesn't matter. Some people say like, well, I was born into this. And, you know, if you look at Oprah's story, for example, tremendous abuse, born with nothing, raised by her grandmother, I believe. So no matter where you are today, mm -hmm. there's always opportunity. There's always hope. Start now. Better late than never. Bogomil Baranowski, where can people find you? Uh, my website, which is bogomilbaranowski.com. I'm hoping that my name will show up somewhere. Yes, yes we'll, we'll add the link. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> That's your only chance, guys. We're not going to spell it for you. <laughs> and uh, I'm also on Twitter. It's bogomil underscore NYC, where I post my articles, everything I write. So that's a good place to start. Excellent. Well, a great conversation on money, life, and family. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. If it's your first time here, please make sure to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or in Spotify. Also, please leave us a rating or written review. This helps others learn about the show and spread the word to new and more people. Lastly, if you're looking to take your personal life, business, or career to the next level and you want access to me as well as my community of like-minded people, head over to courses.brendanhburns.com and join us in Mastery Academy, my membership site that comes with online course content as well as live coaching calls every two weeks hosted by me personally. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.